morning. Our next case is uh, Sound River Inc. Uh, et al. versus NC Department of Environmental Quality Division of Water Resources et al. And I'll note that Justice Berger is recused on this case. Uh, we will hear from the appellant. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, and may it please the court. I'm Jeff Gissler, and with me at council table is Blakely Hildebrand. We represent Sound Rivers and the North Carolina Coastal Federation in this matter. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Administrative rules serve two purposes. First, they provide clarity about an executive agency's decision-making process for those of us outside of the agency, the public, the regulated community, and the courts. Second, they constrain what would otherwise be expansive agency discretion. Here, the Division of Water Resources issued a permit to Martin Marietta that allows the company to dump 12 million gallons of mine wastewater into, the cre into Blunt's Creek each day without establishing reference conditions as required by the biological integrity rule. The reference conditions are really the boundary between what Martin, can, Martin Marietta can do legally and what would result in a fine or revocation of the permit or uh, denial of their next permit application. They're sort of like a speed limit. They make clear to the public and the permittee what is expected. By failing to set reference conditions here, DWR is approached as if there were no speed limit. They're gonna monitor, but it's like sending a police officer out to check the speed that people are traveling without knowing whether what that will be compared to. That fundamental defect in DWR's analysis here means that they didn't properly, they didn't properly evaluate the biological integrity standard when they issued the permit. And it means that going forward, the agency has near complete discretion in how they will apply the standard and evaluate future monitoring efforts. Everything you need to, de to determine that DWR did not reasonably ensure compliance with the biolog biological integrity standard is before the court, either in the ALJ's findings of fact or undisputed in the transcript. Before going into the standard itself, I want to put this in the right context. Because while we disagree on a lot, there's a lot that we actually agree on in this case. There are four phases that we should think about. The first is the application. How did Martin Marietta approach biological integrity in the application? The second is the permit issuance. What did DWR do to determine reasonable, to reasonably ensure that Martin Marietta was complying with the standard. The third is monitoring under the permit, and the fourth is the renewal of the permit, because these permits only last five years. We agree in, in almost the entire part of the location for evaluating biological integrity and the process in the application, in the monitoring, and in the next permit issuance. This case is entirely about whether DWR can go off on its own, untethered from the rule, in issuing the permit. The biological integrity standard has two parts. First is the mandate that says, the Division of Water Resources cannot allow an impact that would preclude the maintenance of biological integrity. That is important, but it's not enough, because without knowing what biological integrity means for a stream or a creek, there is no way to judge whether it is precluded. So we have to look at the rule that defines biological integrity. And there it says that biological, biological integrity is the ability of an aquatic e ecosystem to support and maintain a balanced and indigenous community having species composition, diversity, population density, and functional organization similar to that of reference conditions. Reference conditions are the heart of that definition and therefore the heart of the rule. 
Because if you don't know what the reference conditions are, you can't know what you have to maintain. You can't know what the factors in the rule have to be similar to. And it's those reference conditions that provide guidance going forward. DWR, Mark Marriott is required to monitor under this permit. They will send that monitoring data in. The way that DWR has approached the process here, Mark Marietta won't know if they've complied with their permit. They can't until DWR determines whether they're going to follow the rule or if they're going to do a different approach. In 10 years of litigation, I can't tell you what reference conditions were used in issuing this permit. And in the briefs of the Division of Water Resources and Mark Marietta, they can't either. And we see that in the ALJ's order. On record page 1979 and finding of fact 132, this is essentially the entire factual summary of reference conditions. It says that the DWR director at the time considered reference conditions to be the existing conditions in the Blunts Creek ecosystem without the proposed discharge. Given the importance of those conditions, I asked the director during the hearing what he considered to be those reference conditions. And he said, what is in Blunt's Creek today pre-discharge? That's on transcript two, page 662. So I asked at any specific point in the creek. He said, no, no, just in general. I asked him about the factors in the rule. This is on page 11. These, these next few lines are on 1162 and 1163 of the second transcript. I said, you didn't, I asked him, you didn't quantify species composition, diversity, population density, or functional organization. His answer was no, I did not. I asked him, you don't know of anyone else in DWR that did, do you? His response was no, I do not. I followed up and asked him, you didn't write those reference conditions down anywhere, did you? No, I did not. So we don't have any document to refer to that were the reference conditions used by the agency. We don't have any docu document referred to in either of the next two phases of the life of this permit. So I asked the director, how would you know what reference conditions to compare the impacts to? Well, you know, I asked, so at the time of the trial, he was not the director of the Division of Water Resources. So I asked, how would the new director know what to compare the impacts to? And he said, well, he has other staff to consult, and I could direct him to reopen the permit if I wanted to. He works for me. I made, again, made clear, he wouldn't have a document to refer to. No, no, he would not. He'd have any documents that were in the permit files. And that is where what we're left with following the issuance of this permit, that any staff member at DWR can go to any document in the permit file if it represents refer uh, existing conditions in Blunt's Creek in some way, that staff member can make the decision about whether or not Martin Marriott has complied with their permit. That's not, the, the rule is written to avoid that uncertainty. We see in um, that hazard in finding of fact 157. And that's on page 1981 of the, of the record. Because that page summarizes monitoring. And it says, in, in finding of fact 157, based on this monitoring, the Division of Water Resources can find the company, revoke the permit, reopen the permit, add, new, add more conditions, or revoke the permit. We don't know, we have no basis for knowing how DWR will make that determination. They are entirely untethered from the limitations provided in the rule. And because of that, this, this should be easy. If we look at the, in the record at page 1188, there's a report that Martin Marriott's Martin consultants prepared. 
Now, they prepared it before my clients even knew that this project existed. So it could not have been the result of our interpretation of the biological integrity definition. They identified four places to sample in Blunt's Creek, and they, they went out and did sampling. They processed those samples, and on page 1209 to 1213, they created what could be reference conditions. These specific references are certainly helpful and indicative of where your clients are, but help direct us as a court in terms of how we should look at this in terms of the whole record in looking at the fact that we, uh, as administrative law operates, are to give uh, due deference to agencies in terms of recognizing specialized knowledge. That's the reason for agencies being created uh, to be able to look at what they are deemed to have special knowledge to be able to um, administer and that all of this presumably would be taken into consideration the concerns of the conservationists in terms of the ultimate decision to issue the permit. Uh, how should we look at what we need to look at, which is the whole record, and how would you find it to be deficient in terms of ultimately the permit being granted? Your Honor, I would say that, that that you're being asked to look at the whole record is precisely the problem here. They do get deference if they define reference conditions. They cannot get deference if they choose not to, and if they choose not to follow the rules. So here, you are asked to being, look, being asked to look at the entire record and pull reference conditions out of it. Those don't exist. And so I'll start with the, the three categories of documents that they, they cite in their brief. There's one group that are water quality analyses. They measure things like pH and salinity. The questions that we should ask for each of these sets of documents is, did the director consider it? Because everyone says, everyone testified, both you know, the director testified he made the determination with respect to biological integrity. The permit writer said that he did not, that he left it to the director. And the, the, um, the ALJ found that the biologist was not asked to and did not provide an opinion on the biological integrity analysis. So for each of these sets of documents, two, you should ask two questions. First, did the director consider those documents? And second, does it relate to the definition in the rule that is intended to, to guide the agency's analysis? So well, it, is the record therefore deficient in terms of not mentioning it at all, or is the determination wrongful in that it does not comply with the standard? Your Honor, there is no definition of reference condition. There's no application of the rule to define reference conditions anywhere in the record. It simply doesn't exist. So it's deficient? It's deficient, yes, Your Honor. Well, how would you describe the reference conditions? Like, what are, are they rules or what, in your view, what, what are they? How would you describe them? So the reference conditions are, is, it's the description of what lives in the creek. And um, so, but they have to look at species composition, diversity, functional organization, um, and population densities. What I'm getting at is why do we defer to the agency's interpretation of the reference conditions? You can defer if they do interpret reference, reference conditions. Right, and what I'm asking is why, if the agency interpreted those, would we defer to that over just saying everybody, everyone impacted should be able to look at those conditions, decide what they mean. No one person looking at them should be given any greater deference than anyone else. If they define the conditions using the terms in the rule, you, you defer to the agency because that is demonstrated expertise. If they consider conditions, do not define them, and do not even consider the terms in the rule, that's an error of law. That, that, that goes beyond deference. That's, that's, uh, that's immunity. Because if, if, we can't, if, the, if the court can't get into that analysis, then the, the agency is no longer bound by the rule. Right. I guess I should have, I, let me be more explicit, because I'm actually taking it a step further from you. I'm just okay. wondering doctrinally why that agency deference exists in our case law at all in this context. I think it exists because there can be questions. So if we look at establishing reference conditions, you can, look, you can evaluate functional organization different ways. So if you're looking at insects, you look at what they eat. Do they eat insects? Do they eat plants? 
DWR should be able to determine which of those they look at to determine functional organization. That I don't think is a role for the court to say you should have looked more at the shredders and less at the collector gatherers. Here the problem is they didn't do that. That they left that out entirely. They didn't, they didn't apply the terms. And that's the, where I think the court has a role, has, has a critical role in saying we can't defer to an agency. As I think Judge Hampson said in his dissent, <coughs> you can't defer to an agency that has an interpretation that hasn't interpreted the rule. And that's where I think the that's, I think, the, the appropriate role of the court. So for these three sets of documents, the water quality analyses, Mr. Mr. Reeder did consider those, but they have nothing to do with the biological integrity, integrity definition. They could not establish reference conditions. There are, the, there, there are two sampling events. One was done by, the, by Martin Marietta that I mentioned. That act, they actually took, there are three things that have to happen from sampling to, to reach reference conditions. They have to, the sampling has to be valid. They have to process it to develop the, to define the reference conditions so that you can look at it and see they're there. And then the director had to consider it. Mr. Reeder said he did not consider any specific part of the creek. So we know he didn't consider either of the sampling efforts or any of the, materi the materials produced by them. More important, more, more critically for, for Martin Marietta's analysis is that DWR found it to be invalid. And so that's where I think the agency gets different. If they, if they determine something to be invalid based on their technical expertise, that can get deference. So they threw out Martin Marietta's sampling. The biologist said on page 816 of the record that the company's consultant was consistently and drastically underreporting what was present and that they didn't know how to follow the state's procedures. They made that determination based on their own sampling, but then no one asked the agency biologists to, to, to take that next step of converting that sampling into reference conditions. That was clearly, uh, the permit writer said, if there were reference conditions, they would have come, come from the biologist, but they were never asked to. So those documents also cannot be the basis for reference conditions. The last document is a third document prepared by Martin Marietta's consultants. And it was a literature review. So, so their consultants collected scientific articles about what fish could be in Blunt's Creek and then, determined, and then evaluated whether or not water quality changes would, could affect them. Again, that doesn't define the reference conditions. And when I asked the permit writer about that, I asked him if that was a biological integrity analysis, and he testified no. I asked if they applied the biological integrity definition, and he said, he said that they did not. So none of the documents they're gonna to point to can take the place of reference conditions. What has happened here is before, in August of 2011, four months before my clients even knew this project existed, they sent consultants, Mark Marietta sent consultants out to apply the rule as it's written. That analysis was rejected by the agency and nothing ever took its place. So now, going forward, Mark Marietta is going to send in monitoring and it'll be totally up to whose desk it lands on whether it lands on someone who's more concerned about the sampling sites or whether they're more concerned about another part of the creek. We simply don't know. And that's the kind of unlimited agency deference that the rules are designed to constrain. I'll turn now briefly to the, to the issue of substantial prejudice. To show that my clients, and the question of substantial prejudice is do my clients have a concrete interest here that means they're the right people to be in court? Not, we, don't, we can't win by being substantially prejudiced, but it means that our clients are, my clients are entitled to a decision on the merits. To show that they are substantially prejudiced, we have to show that they use, use Blunt's Creek, that their interests are protected by statute, that they believe the discharge will negatively affect their interests. And we in DWR, agree on the framework here, the framework that was applied by the Court of Appeals below. And what this court said in Empire Power is that under the APA, we look at the organic statute. And here there are really two levels of organic statute. This permitting program is under the Federal Clean Water Act. So that's where it starts. That's the foundation, that's the backbone. DWR imp implements this program pursuant to delegated authority. 
uh, that's in the, described in the memorandum of, of agreement at record page 2391. The state statute that um, that this program is is operated under sets the goal of preserving the natural resources of the state of North Carolina for the enjoyment of the people of North, of North Carolina. It also makes clear that the agency's intent in developing this program was to enable the Environmental Management Commission to take on a federal program like this. So the legislature has said, we want North Carolina operating this program. When we look at the harm that has to be demonstrated to show substantial prejudice, to show a concrete interest that means that our clients are the right people to have in the courtroom. I think the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Friends of the Earth versus Laid Law is the appropriate reference. There the court said that a party had demonstrated an injury in fact by, by, by having a witness testify that he, used, he would like to fish in the river at a specific spot he used as a boy but that he would not do so because of his concern about discharges. The court said that that is exactly the kind of interest that we protect in this statute. We have almost identical testimony here. We have testimony from Dr. Ernie Larkin, who has spent almost 60 years fishing and boating on Blunt's Creek, who has described his use decade after decade, uh, that he likes to fish, that he's concerned about the discharge moving fish downstream out of his favorite fishing holes. And we have the testimony of Jimmy Daniels, who said that with this influx of fresh water, the saltwater fish that he likes to fish for will be moved. Those are exactly the kinds of harms that have been recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court, by the Fourth Circuit, and are well established under the Clean Water Act as the kinds of harms that demonstrate an injury that is concrete and particularized, actual and imminent. And therefore, our clients have demonstrated substantial prejudice. And with that, I will reserve the balance of my time if there are no other questions. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning, and may it please the court. Asher Spiller, representing the Division of Water Resources, and my co-counsel, Scott Conklin, is with me here as well. I'll aim to limit my argument to 15 minutes. However, Martin Marietta has indicated that we should take additional time if needed to address any questions from the court. But again, I will aim to limit my time to 15 minutes. Before issuing the discharge permit for the Vanceboro Quarry, DWR's biologists and engineers spent nearly two years evaluating existing ecological conditions within the creek and evaluating the impact that the proposed discharge from the Vanceboro Quarry would have on those conditions. At the conclusion of that analysis, the agency concluded that the discharge, its impacts would be geographically limited, they would have no adverse impact on fish, no adverse impact on fish spawning, and no adverse impact on benthic macroinvertebrates. An administrative law judge, after a lengthy trial, considered the evidence and agreed with the agency's conclusion that biological integrity of Blunt's Creek would be maintained. Because the Court of Appeals properly determined that the ALJ decision complied with the applicable regulations, the Court of Appeals decision should be affirmed and the permit upheld. In my argument today, I'm gonna to focus on two main points with respect to biological integrity. And the first is that the plain language of the regulations that Mr. Gisler was just discussing, discussing say absolutely nothing about the sampling or technical biological analysis that the agency must do when issuing a permit to reasonably ensure that the permitted discharge will comply with the biological integrity standard. And second. So can I, let, I, let me just ask you quickly about that because I, I just want to make sure I understand. There's a lot of discussion in this case about agency deference. And there can sort of be, as I say, two different sort of doctrinal concepts of agency deference. One is when the agency is interpreting some rule or a statute enacted by the General Assembly. The other is, when, in, in which case that's almost feels somewhat like the agency and the rulemaking, for example, is using its sort of delegated authority. It's, rulemaking is very similar to legislating. There's another thing agencies do, which is, um, so in this case, for example, 
you have experts, people with a lot of scientific knowledge about biology and other things deciding, how can we, for example, test water in a river and figure out uh, what different standards we need to apply here in this process that you really need specialized knowledge for? One might defer to that, you know, because uh, the, uh, courts and other people reviewing those decisions don't have that same expertise. So which deference are we dealing with here? Is it both or is it solely kind of the latter of we're looking at expert decisions by scientists and things like that? So in our view, it's the latter, and I'll explain why. So there are two different canons of deference that you're on referenced. One is deference to agency interpretations of their own regulations. Now, our position here is that the court doesn't need to apply that deference, and the reason is because the regulations are silent. There is nothing in these plain, in the plain language of the regulations that says, DWR, before you issue a permit, you need to do X, Y, and Z sampling and define reference conditions in X, Y, and Z ways. That language does not exist in the regulations. So it's not a matter of regulatory interpretation. Because this, the regulations are silent, the question is, what is a reasonable analysis that the agency has to conduct to, as the regulations tell us, reasonably ensure that the discharge will not preclude the ability of receiving waters to maintain similar biological conditions. That question is a factual question, and the reasonableness of the agency's analysis, precisely, is a question for experts to evaluate. And the ALJ heard testimony from petitioners' experts as to the reasonableness of the agency's analysis. They heard uh, the ALJ heard testimony from agency witnesses he weighed that testimony, and he agreed with the agency's conclusions, both respect to what the impacts would be and that the agency's analysis was reasonable. In doing so, the Administrative Procedure Act directs the administrative law judge to give due regard to the demonstrated knowledge and expertise of the agency. And in this case, the ALJ, considering the evidence that was presented, determined that the agency had demonstrated its knowledge and expertise with respect to the questions that are now before this court. Now, petitioners have argued, uh, Justice Morgan earlier asked a question about the whole record test and considering the whole record. Petitioners have argued that the sole question in this case is a legal question that's entitled to de novo review. However, there is no legal hook for this argument that they are making. They are reading into the regulations a requirement that does not exist. The true question that petitioners are taking issue with is whether or not the agency's analysis of what the impacts would be and the agency's conclusion was properly supported by the evidence. But they have never argued on appeal that any of the ALJ's findings of fact with regard to the agency's, the reasonableness of the agency's analysis or the impacts that are expected to occur, they have never argued that they are unsupported by substantial evidence in the record. So if you look at the ALJ decision, it's a lengthy decision, it's a detailed decision that contains hundreds of findings of fact. If you read that decision, there is not one finding in that decision that petitioners contend is unsupported by substantial evidence. So I'm gonna get in more detail into the, the two points I wanna make. One, one is, as I said, the plain language of the regulations do not contain any specific directive for what kind of sampling or analysis must be conducted. That's a, uh, and because of that, and this leads me to my second point, the reasonableness of the agency's study and the way the agency evaluates the facts that are before it as to what the impacts are gonna be, that's a factual question for the ALJ to evaluate. Which, as I said, can only be overturned under the whole record test, which petitioners have never claimed. I do wanna provide some context um, for the regulations here, because I think it's important to, to note, um, as Mr. Gissler said, we do agree on a lot, and one of the things that we agree upon is that maintaining biological integrity is a fundamental purpose of both the Clean Water Act and North Carolina's Water Quality Standards Program. And it's for that reason that the North Carolina Environmental Management Commission has promulgated numerous numeric water quality standards that are expressly in place to protect the biological integrity of receiving waters. And what these numeric standards do is establish ranges for different parameters that have been scientifically determined to protect aquatic life. Now, in many cases, simply looking at these numeric standards will be sufficient for ensuring compliance with the biological integrity standard. 
But there may be unique circumstances like this one, where there's unique habitat characteristics or particular species of concern that require the agency to do more. The agency has to consider the facts that are before it and craft an appropriate analysis to make sure that the biological integrity of receiving waters are being protected. And in this way, I think it's helpful to think of the narrative standards as serving as a backstop. So when I say narrative standards, I'm referring to here to things like biological integrity that are not defined by numerical metrics, but instead are in narrative form in the standards. So they can serve as a backstop to the numeric standards. So as I said, the first reason that petitioners claim fails is that the regulations simply do not define the analysis that the agency must go through. And in many cases, due to the nature of the discharge, the agency may determine reasonably that no sampling is required at all and that no biological studies are needed at all. And there's an easy example of this, and we refer to it in our brief. You may have a low flow discharge, a discharge that has very low volume and doesn't contain any contaminants in it that pose a risk to aquatic life. In that scenario, it would be wasteful and unreasonable for the agency to direct a permittee to go out there and do biological sampling, conduct a year of biological analyses, when the agency knows that they can reasonably ensure compliance with the biological integrity standard simply by ensuring that the discharge complies with the applicable numeric standard. And, and are you arguing that that is what we have here? Because I, I, I read that in your brief and I, I understand that example, but isn't, aren't we dealing with something quite different here? Absolutely, we are dealing with something very different. But what that example shows is that it cannot be the case that the regulations require as a matter of law a certain amount of sampling to take place or more sampling than what the agency did here. That's a factual question. That's a question about when the agency is exercising its professional judgment to, de not, to design an appropriate study to determine what the biological impacts are gonna be, how much sampling is needed, how much is referring to literature an appropriate way to analyze whether the discharge is gonna pose a risk to aquatic life? That's a factual question. Uh, Justice Earls, you're absolutely right. This is a far more complicated case than the one that I referenced. But what that example shows is that it simply can't be the case that the plain language requires this in every instance. And that is what petitioners are arguing. They're inviting this court to make a legal determination about what the regulations say, as opposed to a factual analysis of whether the ALJ's findings were supported by substantial evidence. And what the ALJ's findings show in this case is that the agency did sampling of benthic macroinvertebrates, they reviewed Martin Marietta's fish sampling, they also did extensive characterization of receiving waters for numerous parameters that directly constrain what the aquatic habitat is like and what types of biological communities it can support. They looked at things like the geomorphology of the stream, they looked at flow, they looked at flow velocity, they looked at pH, they looked at salinity, all of which directly informed the agency's understanding of the aquatic habitat that exists and what the aquatic habitat can support as far as additional discharge. The agency then required uh, Martin Marietta to analyze how the discharge would impact those conditions and in turn impact aquatic life that analysis was reviewed by DWR's biologists and engineers and confirmed. The conclusion that the agency reached in reviewing all this information was that the impacts of the discharge would be geographically limited, primarily in the location of the discharge outfalls, near the discharge points, and that if anything, in those areas where the impacts were expected to, to occur, there would be more hospitable conditions for a higher diversity of creatures but again, geographic scope is important here. And the nature of the discharge, the nature of the impacts that are expected to occur as a result of the discharge, DWR's biologists testified, are typically associated with better water quality, not worse. So we have two factors here, the geographic scope of the discharge, as, uh, of the impacts of the discharge, as well as the nature of the impacts that are expected to occur, none of which are anticipated to be adverse. So as I said, under the APA, 
It was the administrative law judge's task to evaluate the credibility of DWR's experts and to weigh that against the credibility of petitioner's experts. And petitioners put on an expert biologist, they put on an expert water quality scientist, and here's what the ALJ held, and this is on page 2007 of the record. Right before you get there, let me I, um, just make sure that we're all on the same page. So, um, so in a context like this, of this sort of regulatory review, and you've, we've got some provision that says, you know, that, it, that some agency, regulatory agency, must reasonably ensure compliance with some standard. So when we as a, a court, when we hear that word reasonably in pretty much every other context, we say immediately, core fact question. So in a typical case, that's like a jury question. A jury of 12 people get together, what's reasonable? And so, I, but I don't think there's any dispute in this case that only the, the ALJ is the sole fact finder here. The only, is basically the jury going to decide what's reasonable. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. So, and then in, we keep talking about deference, but is the, the deference we're referring to here just the ALJ in the APA process applying this due regard to the agency's decisions and de deciding whether it's reasonable. So an ALJ could certainly say, even having given due regard to what the agency says, it's unreasonable here. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And this ALJ looked ALJ at all the evidence and made a fact finding, essentially, that it was of reasonableness. Yeah, the, what the ALJ said is, quote, the undersigned finds the evidence and expert opinion testimony, as well as the lay opinion testimony, even if admitted, presented by petitioners, does not overcome DWR's determinations with respect to the likely impacts and effects of the permanent discharge, which were thoroughly evaluated based on DWR's knowledge, expertise, and judgment, and well supported by a preponderance of the evidence. In order to overturn that finding, this court would have to hold, and petitioners would have to demonstrate that it was unsupported by substantial evidence, which again, petitioners have never argued during the course of this appeal. So I, if petitioners believe, truly believe that this is a legal question, they should be satisfied with the four corners of the ALJ decision. But if you review their brief and considering their argument today, that's not what they're directing your honors to. They're asking the court to reevaluate testimony given by agency personnel out of context and make new interpretations about what that testimony means. But if you look at the ALJ's findings of fact, all of that testimony was addressed specifically in the ALJ's findings. Um, unless there are further questions on biological integrity, I do want to address substantial prejudice very briefly. Um, I think there, there are three important points to make about substantial prejudice. The first is that the type of injury that must be demonstrated under the APA is the same as it has to be demonstrated in the same way as any other issue on which petitioners bear the burden of proof. It has to be alleged at the pleading stage, at the petition stage. It has to be supported by substantial evidence at the summary judgment stage. And then it must be demonstrated by a preponderance of the evidence at trial. So that's the first point. The second point is that the person aggrieved and the substantial prejudice standards are equivalent. And they have been actually used interchangeably by the General Assembly. And you can see this in uh, the APA, in uh, 150B-23A and 150B-23A4, both terms, person aggrieved and person whose rights have been substantially prejudiced, are used to refer to the class of persons who can, quote, commence a contested case. Then there's the fact that the two terms are simply synonymous on their face. Aggrieved means, the dictionary tells us, aggrieved means harmed or injured. The term prejudice, the dictionary tells us, means harmed or injured. And then you look at the text of the APA, and it says that both of those types of injury must be substantial. So we'd see no textual basis for treating those words any differently from one another. And then the final point I want to make is that the injury that must be demonstrated under the APA, this court's decision in Empire Power defines what that standard is. It tells us it has to be an injury in fact, it tells us it must be caused by the agency action being challenged, and it tells us it must be redressable by a favorable decision. And that's the same language that Article III courts at the federal level have used to evaluate standing in the Article III context, in particular in environmental cases. So we do agree with petitioners that these cases can provide useful 
persuasive authority for North Carolina courts to evaluate that issue. So in conclusion, we respectfully request that the court affirm the Court of Appeals decision upholding the permit, and we ask the court to clarify as well the issue of substantial prejudice. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the next appellee. Good morning, Your Honors. My name is Alex Elkin. I'm an attorney with Brooks Pierce Law Firm together with my co-counsel, uh, Dan Smith, we represent Mark Maria Materials, uh, the permittee in this case. Um, Justice Morgan, I, I believe this is a whole record case. Even if you do what the dissent did and you say, well, we're going to interpret this rule de novo and perhaps not even um, defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation. But if you, if you do that, then you need to take the next step, and the next step is a whole record test to, if, to do what uh, the dissent did, which would be to sweep aside all of the work that the agency did, all of the work that was required of Martin Marietta, the applicant, all of the reports that assessed the existing conditions of the creek, which were stated, and uh, the, the ALJ found as a fact, were the reference conditions that the agency used to determine compliance with the biological integrity standard. There is no reason for the agency to require any of those studies, but to determine compliance with the biological integrity standard. That's what the focus of those studies was. Sound Rivers would relitigate the evidence and the facts of this case. But under the APA, only the ALJ can receive and weigh evidence and find facts. Here he found 311 facts. He did his job at the evidentiary hearing, which Justice Dietz, under 150B34, quote, is to, quote, decide the case based upon a preponderance of the evidence giving due regard to the demonstrated knowledge and expertise of the agency with respect to facts and inferences within the specialized knowledge of the agency. The agents, the entire permitting process demonstrates the applica agency's application of its specialized knowledge and expertise. The context, the regulatory context for the permitting is that the first thing that the agency did here, as they do in most cases, is say, what are the numeric standards that are required to be complied with with respect to this discharge? Again, those numeric standards are designed to protect biological integrity. So early on in the permitting process, and as is required in the permit, the permit requires that the discharge comply with both the effluent limitations, uh, which are, are assigned to the industry. Here, it's, it's dewatering a mine. Um, there, is no, there are no contaminants in um, that water. It goes to a settling pond and it is discharged and is no different from groundwater that makes its way into the river um, naturally every day other than there's a point source discharge which requires the permit. The uh, discharge is also required to comply with the numeric standards that are assigned to the water body. Again, we concur with the state that in many, if not all cases, if not in this case, the state could have said, reference conditions are existing conditions. Every water body in this state is assigned a classification. With that assignment of the classification are the numeric water quality standards that are required to be complied with. It's not as if the state does not know what's out there. Every single water body in this state has a numeric set of numeric standards that is assigned to it and that must be complied with. Um, it is in that context here where they were concerned about um, water quality uh, conditions outside of those numeric standards that they, uh, they required additional work by Martin Marietta. And that is the context in which all of that additional work should be considered because there is no reason to do all that additional work but to determine compliance with the biological integrity standard. 
None of the findings of fact, 311 findings of fact, the ALJ uh, were challenged properly before the Court of Appeals. The agency did his job, as uh, Mr. Spiller has laid out in some detail. There is double deference here, uh, deference to the agency's application of its rule uh, that should be looked at under the whole record test and deference to the ALJ's findings of fact, which are binding on this court as they have not been properly challenged. The Court of Appeals majority applied the 150B51 uh, standard to uh, evaluate the ALJ's decision and deferred to the agency as required under 150B-34. The agency properly issued the permit, which reasonably ensures water quality standards, including the biological integrity standard, will not be violated. I would point out that the EPA reviewed and acquiesced to the issuance of the final permit. The permit is subject to renewal every five years. There are extensive monitoring requirements. If there is any evidence that the um, the water quality standards, including the narrative standard, but also the numeric standards, uh, are threatened to be violated, the agency may re uh, reopen the permit and modify it or revoke it to address those potential uh, violations. The ALJ properly received and weighed evidence, weighed evidence, excuse me, and upheld the issuance of the permit. Court of Appeals majority applied the proper standards of review and upheld the permit. We ask that this court do the same. My colleague, Mr. Smith, will address the two APA issues. Thank you, counsel. May it please the court again, Dan Smith with Brooks Pierce on behalf of Martin Marietta Materials. I'm here on the discretionary review issues. Thousands of North Carolinians rely on the Office of Administrative Hearings to decide small and large cases each year. For the administrative law issues brought forth on discretionary review, we seek neutral, predictable application of the statutory text. And like the biological integrity issue brought on petitioner's appeal of right, we seek reaffirmation, as in Carroll, to the deference owed to the ALJ as fact finder. If I were to summarize our arguments in only three words, I would say follow the statute. Follow the statute and require proof of substantial prejudice before an expert agency decision is overturned in OAH. Follow the statute and enforce the timely service requirement for a petition for superior court review. Neutral application of the Administrative Procedures Act promotes consistency, predictability, and uniform application across the diverse caseload of the Office of Administrative Hearings. As Chief Judge ALJ Mann noted in his 2018 report to the General Assembly, over 7,700 cases were filed in OAH in 2018 alone. With that volume of cases, it is essential that this, course, this court uphold the statutory language, which recognizes the central role agencies play in completing the business of government. Now I'm gonna focus most of my time on the substantial prejudice issue. It is a fundamental principle that allegations are not proof. This is a fundamental principle expressed in the APA. A person aggrieved may obtain a hearing in OAH. They may have their evidentiary hearing. They may come through the OAH courthouse doors and be heard. That's not an issue here. Martin Marietta agrees with petitioners and agrees with the state that a person aggrieved may bring their case and be heard. But where we disagree is on the issue of final proof, the proof of substantial prejudice. Since it was amended in 1985, the APA in sections 150B23 
in 150B29 has required proof of substantial prejudice to obtain the drastic remedy of overturning the state's issuance of a permit. These standards, person aggrieved and substantial prejudice, get conflated in the briefing and in the argument to this court. But as we lay out, especially in our reply brief at pages six and seven, if you look at the scope of the APA and how the APA uses person aggrieved and how the APA uses substantial prejudice, it's plain that person aggrieved is a standing requirement. It's like the state constitutional requirements this court recently examined in committee to elect Dan Forrest. Person aggrieved, you get your hearing. Substantial prejudice, on the other hand, is a proof of injury by evidence, credible, persuasive evidence that you have been injured and thus can have the remedy of overturning this, the state's action. This APA also makes clear by in context that substantial prejudice is loss of property, is a fine, is a penalty, or other substantial prejudice to rights. It's something concrete. Now here, in findings of fact 249 to 311, the ALJ addressed the issue of the substantial prejudice. So 62 finds the fact on this issue. And the ALJ found that the concerns, beliefs, and fears expressed and alleged by petitioners were speculative, not credible, and lacked evidentiary support. They did not carry their burden. Now, we don't doubt the good faith of these beliefs and these concerns and their, these fears, but speculative beliefs are simply not evidence. Turning quickly to the issue of timely service, the statute makes clear that you have a 10-day requirement. It's mandatory. There's confusion in the Court of Appeals between the Owens, Fallum, and Barber decisions. Some attention to that would be helpful. We would submit that that 10-day requirement is jurisdictional and should be enforced as such. So on the discretionary review issues, we would ask this court to vacate the Court of Appeals and enforce the plain language of the APA. On the biological integrity issue, we'd ask for deference to the agency and deference to the ALJ. The agency did its job. The permit should be affirmed. Thank, thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. There are two errors of law in the ALJ's decision. On substantial prejudice, the ALJ required us to demonstrate not only that our members use the creek, not only that they have reasonable belief about how the, use, the creek will be, the change in the creek will affect their interest, but then to provide through expert testimony physical uh, direct evidence of harm to the creek. Beyond that, which the state and, and Martin Marietta have already said will happen as a result of this permit. That is almost exactly what the district court in the Gwaltney case, uh, sorry, Gaston Copper case we cite in our brief did. And there in the Fourth Circuit, the uh, um, Judge Wilkinson said, that is too high an evidentiary bar, that we cannot, you cannot require direct evidence of harm under the Clean Water Act when we allow circumstantial evidence to, to be the basis of criminal convictions. He said that it's not based in the Constitution under Article Three, and that it conflicts with the, stat, with the text of the Clean Water Act. The, what, um, the, the circumstance there was that someone lived downstream, understood there was pollution coming downstream, and that that kept him from using his, his, lake, his lake and creek in the way that he wanted to. That was enough there, and it is enough here to demonstrate substantial prejudice. So, Council, um, one of the things that the ALJ says, or said in the order, or wrote in the order, was that um, 
you can't rely on the impact on recreational uses of state waters to show substantial prejudice. What's your take on that? Uh, Your Honor, I believe that was overturned by the Superior okay. Court and has been abandoned on okay. appeal. All right, thank um, you. That, that clearly conflicts with the Clean Water Act and state law. The error of law on biological integrity, it is an error of law. This is not a whole record case because the question here is can DWR avoid the terms in the rule? If they defined reference conditions that were based on the terms in the rule, they would get deference. They did not do that here. They cannot identify that. And so they, they cannot get deference when they avoid the rule. Narrative standards uh, under 15A NCAC 02H112C, DWR has to ensure, reasonably ensure compliance with all water quality standards before they issue a permit. Narrative standards are not a second tier, they are complementary, uh, they cannot be substituted. If DWR does that baseline analysis, I think the outcome here would have been different. Because while, we, while Mr. Spiller uh, dismissed, and I think this shows the, the error that the ALJ made. The ALJ dismissed the testimony about, about the effects of the discharge at the sample site, the testimony from the agency's biologist. Said those are geographically limited, that's a term you've heard today. Those sample sites are where Martin Marietta, what they had analyzed in their application, they're where DWR says, they say they will evaluate biological, biological integrity in the future. And when they talk about monitoring, it's monitoring at those locations that will determine whether or not Martin Marietta complies with its permit. In issuing this permit, DWR threw those out. It cannot be that the rule requires that analysis in the application, requires that analysis in monitoring, They've said that they will require that analysis in the next permit, but they can ignore it here. That's not deference, that's, that's immunity. Because it, the agencies don't get deference because of the amount of work they do. If that's the standard, then these agencies will not be constrained by rules. And that matters here. Because the biologist, their lead biologist, this guy goes out 150 to 200 sites a year and measures biological integrity by sampling. He testified, the, the testimony that he gave about those sample sites, he said that many of the taxa currently found in this system will be replaced by taxa which are adapted to more permanent flows, higher pH, and higher dissolved oxygen. These types of streams and the taxa which inhabit them are not normally found in North Carolina's coastal plain. I asked him on the stand if he could find any creek in the state of North Carolina based on the data that they had collected, sampling 150 sites to 200 sites a year, that would look like what Blunt's Creek would look like with this discharge. No. He said no. They only get to that result. They only get to issuing this permit that will create a creek unlike anything normally found in North Carolina's coastal plain. At the places that they have said they will use to evaluate biological integrity in the future because they ignored the definition in the issuance. If these reports had said we're looking at those sample sites where we have defined the biological community as required by rule, they could not have reached this outcome. And if that sampling data is what they're going to use <coughs> for reference conditions, that is a new condition to the permit that Martin Marietta likely would have challenged if it were part of the permit. But it, under the Court of Appeals order, where anyone at DWR can go to anything in the record, that is absolutely what DWR can do. That is not how we, that, that's not our system. We have rules. This rule was created by the Environmental Management Committee. It went through notice and comment. It has been on the books. DWR cannot decide to take it off for issuance of this permit, only to bring it back later.
So we've demonstrated substantial prejudice. We have shown that DWR failed to reasonably ensure compliance with this definition because as Judge Hampson said, you cannot determine that you haven't precluded biological integrity if you never evaluate the standard as it's defined. And therefore, we ask this court to vacate this permit, to affirm the Court of Appeals on both the substantial prejudice issue and on the service issue. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, everyone. Clerk.